0: We continue our study of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, our goal tonight will be to try to finish chapter 4. And Lord willing, the next uh, two Wednesday nights, uh, Stan Spear will help you to understand better chapter 5. R- remember, if you will, that these Christians were living among people who were not pure I mean morally pure. And because of living in that environment, there would be a danger of accepting and practicing that lifestyle. It it is often the case, it has been often the case, that our surroundings influence us more than we influence our surroundings. And... The Thessalonians could have faced, obviously, that danger. Now, it it is very possible that some of these saints had lived at one time immoral lives. We would be somewhat surprised if they hadn't. And because, like the Corinthians, we're clearly told that they were guilty of some sins, including sexual sins. We would think that these Thessalonians could have just as easily been guilty of those sins. And they would have to guard against being drawn back into that lifestyle. You would like to think that everyone who leaves an immoral lifestyle never is tempted to go back to it. Not the case. Paul shows how serious he is about what he writes in verse 1 of chapter 4. We urge and exhort you. We urge and exhort you. Now these were not unfamiliar matters that Paul was urging and exhorting concerning. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally then we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received, past tense, from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you, past tense, through the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all such as we also forewarned past tense, you, and testified past tense it it is it's just the case that people, including us, need to be reminded of things that we know, <laughs> uh, things we know. Well, God's will for these people is their sanctification. That's what Paul says. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He wants them to be set apart, to be holy people. That's the root of sanctification is the same root as saint. And saint is one who is set apart. So that's that's God's intention that they be set apart in a good way, not hermits and not cloistered in, in, in monasteries, but to be set apart from the evil and from the immoral lives that are around them. And it is to be seen in, first of all, abstaining from sexual immorality and By controlling or possessing one's body in holiness and honor. It's not just what you don't do, it's what you do. You don't don't get involved in sexual sin and you keep yourself, you possess yourself in holiness. Now, since sexual sins involve others, Paul writes this in verse 6 that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Um, Notice he says in verse 6, no one should take advantage of and defraud his his brother. Now, Paul could mean any person. There is a sense in which all men are brothers. You hear somebody say, "Hey, brother, how you doing?" That's not really his brother. He just may be using that in in the sense of a of a human expression. But but I began to think about this, and that is that perhaps Paul could well mean a spiritual brother, a fellow Christian. Don't don't do something immoral that would affect your spiritual brother. And why, why would I think that? Well, because Christians in the first century, and, and God intended to be in, true in every century, but particularly, I think, in the first century, because they were such a minority and there were so many outside pressures, Christians seemed to be extremely close, extremely close. And there there could be a danger of getting too close and crossing the line. you know, love one another well, well how, how much do you love one another? Um, <laughs> I, I've told you before, forgive me, but some of you haven't heard it. Maybe one person had heard it. The rest of you have forgotten there there's and I can't quote it exactly because I didn't try to look it up but when when the when the topic of greet one another with a holy kiss is discussed usually we we reach back into history and we find that that the church stopped that now is there anything wrong with kissing each other no and and the emphasis is not just kissing, it's a holy kiss, but the reason they stopped it is one writer said the the church was filled with loud smacks, and you can imagine some overzealous man approaching a beautiful Christian sister, and he's not just kissing her on the cheek, he's being too intimate with her. Uh, That's speculation. I understand that. But I'm saying to you that that it it is entirely possible that this affected brothers in Christ. An An illicit affair is always wrong. It's always wrong. But think about this. If it is within the church that there is an illicit affair between two church members, It's a bomb that goes off. It's a bomb. We we have more angst about that than one of our members having an illicit fare outside of the church. Because it really stirs up emotions and creates difficulties. And so I can see that as a possibility. And so... Paul says, abstain from that, keep yourself pure, don't defraud your brother. Here is reason one to obey the warning, and that's in verse 6. God will avenge all such violations of purity. It doesn't make any difference if we take care of the problem or people pay the penalty in this life by man. God will take care of it. He will avenge that. A second reason is given in verse 7, and here's where we actually continue our study tonight. All that you've heard so far has just been background. Verse 7, second reason. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Here's the second reason to avoid sexual sin. It's not only that God will take vengeance on the wrongdoer. He didn't call us to be that way. That's not His purpose in us coming to Him, is to be immoral. It's not to be immoral. And, and obviously, if He wants us to be holy, then we should walk in harmony with His purpose for us. His purpose for us. Verse 8, therefore, someone always says, what's that therefore? It, it's to connect with what has just been said, I believe, and, and typically it is. The conclusion of this in verse 8 is, therefore, he who rejects this, this is incidentally not in the text, it's supplied, he who rejects does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The man who disregards this matter of sexual purity is rejecting God's will, but more than that, he's rejecting God. You cannot reject God's will without rejecting God. God is so closely connected to his will that you cannot separate them. You know no no one can truly claim to have a connection to God while at the same time rejecting what God wants us to do and to be. You just can't i mean you may you can say it but but no one should believe it. You can't say, "I really love God, I'm really obeying God, and at the same time you're not obeying God it doesn't work now it's not the thrust of this. Class, but Paul believed that all Christians are given the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit. And has given or gives indicates continuous giving in a sense. In other words, God is giving us His Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches us that we receive the Holy Spirit when we become children of God, He dwells in us. My my freshman Bible teacher taught me, and I believe it's true, you wouldn't know God's Spirit was in you unless the Bible told you. That is, empirically, you don't feel the Spirit in you. He he doesn't move within you. But the text teaches that God's Spirit is in us. Um, And incidentally, Those who press the issue too much that the Spirit really is no more than the Word of God uh, have a hard time, it seems to me, separating how we could receive the Word and then God could give us His Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gives the Word. He's not the Word. And it's clear from the teaching of the New Testament that the Spirit is a personality. You can grieve the Spirit. And you can't grieve an inanimate thing. And even though the Word of God is powerful and it's said to be living and active, it's not living in that sense. You can't grieve the Word. Now, in other places, Paul shows that the Holy Spirit has a part in our sanctification. Here is the will of God, you be sanctified. How is that accomplished? God gives you His Spirit, and His Spirit helps us in sanctification. Look, look at just a couple of passages. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. And verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, notice, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Spirit of our God. Uh, Look at verses 18 through 20. And incidentally, think about the connection here. Paul had been writing about this. He writes to the Corinthians in verse 18, of chapter 6 of First Corinthians. Flee sexual immorality for every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who, who is in you, whom you have from God and you're not your own? In 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 13, Paul will write this. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for sanctification through, uh, through chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see the separation: Spirit and Truth. They're not they're not the same. Spirit produced the truth but spirit and truth are different. Now in verse 9, he says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Some would say, and, and it would be not doubted, that Paul turns to a different matter, Brotherly love, but perhaps it's not completely a different matter. Because if the negative is don't take advantage of and defraud your brother, the positive is show love to your brother. Don't don't hurt your brother by immorality. Show love to him. Real love. Genuine love. Now, in verse 9, when he says concerning brotherly love, it It is possible that he's indicating that he's answering a question now concerning brotherly love. And the reason I say that is that it looks much like what we see in first Corinthians first Corinthians seven, chapter one and verse twenty five and chapter eight, verse one, chapter twelve, verse one, chapter sixteen, verse one. Paul says again and again, now concerning things of which you wrote concerning things which you wrote and, and and he uses he doesn't say wrote here but he says now but concerning brotherly love. maybe someone had asked a question about what it really meant to love your brother. Paul assures them that they don't need instru- additional instruction about love of the brethren. You, you don't need to be taught because you've been taught by God. Incidentally, that doesn't mean miraculously taught by God. It means by the Word of God. Because, you see, when inspired men, like Paul, taught, it was in reality God teaching them through Paul. God's still the teacher. Paul is just the vehicle through which they're taught. The, the Greek word here in verse 9, brother, the two words in our language, brotherly love, is the word philadelphia if we were to put it in english letters philadelphia and and it is used on a number of occasions in the new testament to describe the love that saints have for each other we love like we're brothers in a family and not every brother loves his brother but that the way it ought to be and and we see that repeatedly let's look at a couple of these just to note them Romans 12 Romans 12 and verse 10 1210 be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another look at Hebrews chapter one um, chapter 13 I'm sorry Hebrews chapter 13. A real short statement. Let brotherly love continue. I'm glad that whoever wrote Hebrews could say, just keep on loving. Let it keep on going. And in 1 Peter, 1 Peter, the first chapter, and verse 22. 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That's one of the strongest statements, I believe, about brotherly love there. It's from a sincere heart. Love fervently. Not just, hey, glad to see you, and you know, nice to know you. It's love each other fervently. I think it must have delighted Paul uh, to be able to write that the Thessalonians were practicing what they had been taught. That, that's a preacher's delight. Because in verse 10, he says, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Paul didn't just congratulate him for loving each other within the Thessalonian congregation. He says, You have love throughout Macedonia. That's a pretty big area, a number of different churches. But he's not satisfied there because he says at the latter part of the verse, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Here's how, not only how extensive the love is, but you can do it even more. And and we must not ever be satisfied with whatever love or whatever level of love we feel like we've achieved for our brethren. There is always room to grow. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so important that our love be intense, that we continue to grow in it? Because Jesus said what? By this shall all men know that you, have, that you are my disciples. What? If you hate each other, if you have love one for another. That, that's, now, that's not the only sign And please, we need to talk about this on more than one occasion, I think. You you never take one passage and say that's the totality of biblical teaching. If there are other passages that teach other things, brotherly love isn't everything. Communists can love each other. Atheists could love each other. Probably don't, but they could. But Jesus said that people needed to see that we really love each other. And, incidentally, there are historical statements that have been captured in which outsiders, unbelievers, said, see how they love one another. It amazed them. Because that wasn't a common characteristic of the society of their day. People didn't really care for each other. One of the things that I used to tell my Indian brethren while I was there was I would ask them the question, do you think Hindus really love each other? And they look somewhat quizzical. I don't think they ever even thought about that. But but I told them, no, I don't think they do love each other. Because they, what I had seen among Hindus and Remember, the nation's predominantly 80% Hindu. I, I I told them, I think if two Hindus were going up the steps of the temple and bumped into each other, they might start a fist fight right there. They don't love each other. Their, their religion is an individual religion. It's me and whoever those pantheon of gods are. It's never I worship these, but these are all my spiritual family. They don't really feel that way. But Christians do. Christians do, or we should. If if that's not the case, people pick up on it. I preached in a little community once, and there was a real problem within the church. An elder in the church and his nephew, who was a deacon, would not speak to each other. Now, how do you think that went over in a little farming community? And don't tell me that people didn't find that out. They found it out. They knew it. And it was a black mark against the church. If two people who are related and are in the same spiritual body won't even talk to each other, why should we be interested in that religion? Now, in verse 11, some think that there's another change of, of subjects. And I'm going to say again, not necessarily. Because these admonitions that are going to follow could very easily be considered the fruits of brotherly love. What's the negative? Don't defraud your brother. What's the positive? Love your brother. What's the fruit of this? Well, here it comes. Verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Aspire to lead a quiet life. Have a calm spirit. And, And if all within the body of Christ aspire to live a quiet life, there's going to be harmony that's going to exist. And incidentally, when Paul says aspire to live a quiet life, doesn't sound much like people who take to the street to challenge police and throw rocks and shout profanities, does it? That's not a quiet life. That's an ungodly life. But Paul clearly says, "Mind your own business. Mind your own business. Don't intrude into the affair of others." There are there are people who want to manage the lives of other people. And and, and it doesn't mean, incidentally, that you don't have anything to do with other people. Because the same apostle wrote in Galatians 6, 1 and 2 that we bear burdens of one another. And if you see a brother overtaken in a trespass, you are a spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. You can't stay away from people But you can't get so involved in people's life that you become meddlesome. And we should be smart enough, I think, to know the difference between helping and meddling. Look at 1 Peter 4 and remember the Apostles' words. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. It's a pretty bad group of people to be associated with, murderers and evil people. You stay out of other people's business. I I, I thought about this, and I'm going to just share this real quickly if I can. We have to be careful about this careful to to listen to what the apostle says, mind your own business, don't be a meddler. But we must not let that put us in a position where we don't do what we need to do to help someone. And, And here's what I was thinking about. You just think about this, okay? Sometimes I think we harm our attempt to help someone if we say, I don't mean to meddle, but Well, isn't that what you're saying, is I'm meddling? I don't mean to meddle, but I'm meddling. I don't think you have to say that. So maybe you shouldn't say, I don't mean to meddle. Maybe what you should say is, I care about you, and I want to try to help you. May I help you? If somebody says to me, well, I don't mean to meddle, then I say, well, why are you doing it? But but again, we ought to know the difference between meddling, getting involved in something we have no business being involved in, and helping someone. And, And then Paul adds here in verse 11, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. You see, being restless, and these may be connected more than we think, intruding into the affairs of others, would cause neglect of one's own duties. If you're spending all your time meddling in other people's affairs, you're not doing what you should be doing in your own life. Work with your own hands. There is dignity in labor, in honest work. And when we get to 2 Thessalonians 3 and verses 6 through 12, we're going to hear the apostles say some very strong things about this. Paul said, you heard this commanded, that you ought to work. And it it makes us wonder if there was already a problem with some people not wanting to work. You know, we we see that example in the early part of Acts about how generous the church was. People who had need were helped. And, And I'm sure the early church was benevolent in many ways but sometimes people take advantage of benevolence, don't they? Now, it may also be related to confusion about the second coming. Because we know this, there are some, we'll see this more in 2 Thessalonians, there were some people who said, we don't need to work because Christ's coming again. What good does it do to work? We're just wasting our time. Now, This is a problem in our day. I'm not on a soapbox, but I'm not going to back down from what I think is true, and that is that government programs have made it easy for some not to work. And assistance is good for people who need it. But assistance is not good when people can work and should work and don't work. If you go to Lewistown, Pennsylvania, and they show you around the town, you'll see a town that looks pretty bad. And, they, and, and people in Lewistown who know will tell you that one of the things that's wrong with Lewistown is they have third-generation welfare people. Third generation. Three generations have been helped by the government, and they're still not working. The Christian does not want other people to take care of him. He wants to take care of himself and should. Now, sometimes it's not possible. But the church is not obligated. Please, the church is not obligated to take care of people who won't work. And we're going to see that forcefully stated. Paul will say in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, if a man will not work, what? Neither shall he eat. And that doesn't mean that you, you, you keep him from eating. It means you don't provide food for him. If he won't work, you don't feed him. Is that because you're hateful? No, because he's doing the wrong thing. And if you feed him when he can work, you're just enabling him. Now, verse 12, what's the purpose of this? That you may walk properly. Now, notice it's in the context of working. You may walk walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. First, to show outsiders, unsaved people, the right way to live. The right way to live is not to let other people take care of you, but to work with your own hands and you will win respect. And secondly, to have what you need. See, that's, that's the one of the real values of work. Work keeps you busy, keeps you out of trouble a lot of times, keeps you focused on something worthwhile, but it also provides you what you need. You don't have to be begging other people to help you, and you're not going to be dependent on other people. You're going to take care of yourself. Okay. I'm not running for political office. Please believe me. I, I, I think sometimes, and, and I just want to say this and I'll quit on that. I think, I think sometimes we're so concerned about being politically correct that we say things that we really know aren't true. And, and we, we need to get honest. We need to get honest. And, and this is honest. Honest. So you don't have to apologize for this. And you don't have to apologize for believing it because it's God's Word. In verses 13 through 18, and we're going to rush. I may come back to this later when we go to 2 Thessalonians. Because Paul is going to deal with a very important matter. In, In the previous three chapters, in each chapter he has mentioned at least one time, the second coming of Christ. And and he deals with it here in greater detail. And the purpose of these words is found in verse 18. Therefore, one another, verse 18 is a word of comfort would come from understanding, and they needed to understand this. You can divide this small portion of Scripture into four parts. The problem, verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We, we can't really be certain how, how it was that Paul learned it, but I think we're certain that he knew that there was some anxiety on the part of people. Maybe he learned it through Timothy. And there was a lack of understanding about what about our loved ones who die in the Lord. Incidentally, it's very important that we understand that we're talking about people who die in the Lord. Die in the Lord. Our brethren who've fallen asleep in the Lord. Um, There is obviously an old saying that says, what you don't know won't hurt you. That's not true. It It can hurt you. And a lack of understanding did hurt these Thessalonians. And it caused, evidently, some of them to grieve unnecessarily. And the question seems to be this. What happens to those who die in Christ before his second coming? What's going to happen to them? Is it just they lose everything because they didn't live until he returned? And there are two things to note about this, I think. And that is Christians are not immune to sorrow. Our loved ones get sick and die just like Others who are loved by their friends and family, even if they're not Christians. And Paul's not saying that it's wrong to sorrow. Sometimes we we have to be affected by our emotions, and sorrow is a natural emotion. But it's wrong to weep like those who have no hope, when we should have hope. Now, you've heard this, you've heard this, I think you've heard it, (laughs) I think you've heard it. You may have attended a funeral and you, I hope you haven't heard it about me, but you maybe have heard it about some denomination preacher. He preached him right into heaven. And it's almost like, and some of those things can be really difficult to sit through, can't they? Because here's somebody who had no religion and yet he's... the preachers put him in heaven. He, he knows he's saved. Okay. Okay. So we're not talking about putting somebody in heaven, but we are talking about the confidence that we ought to have that if one is in Christ and is faithful to Christ, that Christ will give him his reward. That's that's not being unfair. That's having real assurance. And I think we see that in the scripture now. The the promise, the second part of this, the problem of the promise is verse 14 and 15. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even even so God will bring with him those who sleep. Notice, in Jesus, sleeping in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. What can alleviate the sorrow that we feel at death? Well, relying on the promises of God. And and that will be possible to rely on those only if we're confident in the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes our entire faith dependent upon the resurrection of Christ. If Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain. It's worthless. Well, I think the kids are starting to come in, but I, I want to come back to this a little bit because there's some things that we need to really understand. One of them is God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. What does it mean to sleep in Jesus? And we'll consider other things as well. Thank you for being here tonight.